Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Thank you. Well, great to be with you uh, this evening and to be able to share in a study of the book of Zechariah. Now, immediately, as based on what Billy said the other week, you'll notice the difference between Mike and I. Uh, people ask Mike to sing, they ask me not to sing. I don't know how that relates to spiritual gifts, but uh, <laughs> I take it to heart and uh, I obey that one. So when we uh, come to a book like uh, Zechariah, I don't know how many have ever sort of studied it in depth or been exposed to a study. Because we have a number of um, sessions together, we can look at a, a longer uh, book than normally uh, would be done. Uh, some assemblies have looked at a book like Zechariah, perhaps sequentially with different men uh, taking uh, various sessions, but it's a, a difficult book perhaps to divide up in that way. And so I'm glad of the opportunity just to sort of flow uh, through it and see what we can learn. Uh, Zechariah in many ways is perhaps the, uh, maybe next to Isaiah the most messianic of the Old Testament books. It has a lot to say uh, about the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. But as you read Zechariah and a number of the other prophets of the Old Testament, uh, some of what they present is historical. Uh, it could be historical as in the time frame they're writing from. It may be prophetical at that moment, but historical now looking back. Or it may be prophetical in that it looked to the first coming of Christ or perhaps even the second coming of Christ. Sometimes there are prophecies in the Old Testament where uh, both comings of Christ are seen sort of in sequence. The, uh, the Jews often thought there must be two messiahs, uh, one who suffers and one who reigns, uh, Ben Joseph and Ben David, the son of uh, Joseph, the son of David, one who suffered and the one who, who will uh, reign because how could... One person fulfill all these things, uh, a man of sorrows and yet one who will rule and reign. And we see some of that uh, certainly when we look at the, uh, the book of uh, Zechariah, the near and the far and uh, first and second coming. Uh, the rejection of Christ is in here, but the reign of Christ uh, is in here as well. Now, it, uh, it deals with some current issues in, uh, in Zechariah's day. It deals with some things about the city of Jerusalem, some things about the city of Babylon. Uh, it makes some allusions to historical, what we see as historical things now. Uh, there's an allusion to Alexander the Great in here. There's an allusion to the time of the Maccabees, that is the men, the family that led a revolt uh, in the year 165 or so before Christ uh, against the Syrians. And so there's an allusion to that in here. And there's some particulars when it comes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, about him coming into Jerusalem on a colt. And uh, being, uh, there's a story of a shepherd being sold for 30 pieces of silver and the silver being thrown uh, into the temple. And so there are some very uh, pointed things about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to do as we look at Zechariah, I hope we can do it expositionally, that is, work through it and say, here's, here's where it's coming from, here's where it's going, here's what it means, and, and get an exposition of it. 
Uh, I hope, too, that we can get some devotional thoughts from it. There's a lot of things uh, in Zechariah, I said, that point to the Lord Jesus. And so we can look at some of these things and perhaps do some little rabbit trails and uh, think of how these things speak to us about him. So, for instance, twice there are passages that refer to him as the branch. Uh, Two of the six passages of the Old Testament uh, that refer to him as the branch are found in the book of Zechariah. So we want to explore uh, that. Now, when you are reading, uh, assume you read the Bible in the morning, and you read uh, both to be educated, to be edified, to enjoy, uh, one of the keys to reading Scripture is to understand the type of literature you're reading. Uh, The type of literature makes a difference in terms of how the Lord would speak to you. And so uh, poetry is different than prophecy. Uh, Parables are different than Paul's uh, preaching. And so it's it's important to understand the type of literature. And so as we read through and look through Zechariah, some of it will be narrative, that is, he's telling story, but uh, some of it's prophecy. And that is, there are some, there's some imagery, there's some things going on that are, that are sort of characteristic of that type of, of uh, literature. And so we want to keep that in mind. And as you read, it's important to know, well, why, is this, why was this written? Uh, to whom was it written? What is, the, what is the concern? And so we want to think of that sort of as a parameter of, of as we look at the book of uh, Zechariah. Now, when we read Zechariah, of course, it's not written to the church. It's not written to us in particular. Uh, it's not written about us. And so there are things in here that will never be true for us. But what it does reveal is something about the character of God, the way God deals with his people, and those types of of things. Now, one of the the keys to looking at unfulfilled prophecy, that is prophecy that relates to the, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to understand that there are two very different and opposing sort of points of view. If, uh, if you were in, say, a Presbyterian uh, church or Reformed church, Christian Reformed, Dutch Reformed, or even a Reformed Baptist, their view would be that God is finished with Israel. Israel's just gone. Uh, so when Israel rejected Christ, Christ turned to the Gentiles, and we, the church, have become spiritual Israel. Uh, in Exodus 19.5, uh, God's book of Israel is being a royal priesthood or a holy priesthood, and they would look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and say, well, that's us now. We are the holy uh, priesthood. Uh, They would look at the covenant in Jeremiah 31 and say, well, that covenant was a new covenant. Now we're under that new covenant. And they would say, Israel's over and done with. And so if you were having a discussion with somebody that had a reformed perspective when it came to prophecy, uh, you could never really discuss passages. You, your only point of discussion is God finished with Israel, or is he not? If he's finished with Israel, then their perspective is right. If he's not finished with Israel, then there's got to be another perspective. So in Reformed theology, they don't believe that there's going to be a tribulation. They don't believe there's going to be a millennial kingdom. They believe when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again, that's the end of everything. And so what you have in Second Peter chapter 3 
uh, a new heaven and a new earth. That happens when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again because he's done with Israel. And so that's the, the future. They would look at some of these passages in Zechariah, and in particular, say the book of Revelation from 6 to 19. They would look at it and say, those things are either fulfilled or being fulfilled today. It's not the tribulation period, but the beast is perhaps the Roman Catholic Church, and they would see all these things happening uh, today as opposed to the future. They would say, no, these are things today. And they would look at the blessings that are given to Israel, especially in the millennial kingdom, and say, well, those blessings are for the church. They're not, they're not really, the Lord doesn't really mean the land, and he doesn't mean the city. He just means the church gets all those blessings in a spiritual way. And so we, we would say, and they would say, that their method of interpretation, when they look to the future, it would be allegorical or figurative. And so Israel doesn't mean Israel, it just means the church. And all those things are not literal, but you just take them to uh, mean, here's the blessings that come to the church. Now, on the other hand, there are those, I guess, who would hold to a dispensational uh, view. And without going into all that's involved there, the main difference would be we would see God is not finished with Israel. But what he says in Jeremiah 31, uh, about that covenant as being unchangeable, what he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, again in Genesis 22, uh, what he ratified both to Isaac and to Jacob, we'd say those are unconditional promises. God is going to fulfill his word. He's not finished with Israel. When we get to Romans 11:26, we say all Israel will be saved. Why? Because God says he's not finished with them. When we read in the book of Zechariah, Israel's going to go through a, a, a holocaust worse than the one they've been through. But God's still going to deal with them. He's not finished with them uh, yet. And so that's the, uh, the big sort of divide between the two. Now, uh, on that other side, there would be what you would call all millennial as well. So people in a, in a say, a Catholic or Episcopalian church, their doctrine would be all millennial. That is, they don't believe that there's going to be a kingdom on earth. Uh, they're not reformed in some of their theology, but they wouldn't look ahead and say there's going to be a kingdom on earth. And so we would look at the book of Zechariah, and it talks about Christ coming physically to earth, and talks about his rule and reign in Jerusalem, talks about the nations coming uh, to him. Uh, Zechariah 9 verse 10 talks about the fact that his dominion will be from sea to sea, right? That he will rule. Uh, for you who are not in the know, that's, that's where the motto for Canada came from. Not really that verse. Psalm 72 verse 8 has the same words. His dominion will be from sea to sea. And so that was our motto. We are no longer called the dominion, but that's one of the fathers of confederation was reading his devotions. In the morning, they were talking about the motto for Canada. And he was reading in Psalm 72 and out of verse 8, where it says his dominion would be from sea to sea. But that's also in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. And so we would look at that and say, no, why not just take it for what it means? Uh, he's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about rule on earth. He's talking about Christ coming back again. Uh, he's talking about his dealings with Israel. We'd say, well, let's just let Israel be Israel. And let's just take it uh, literally. Uh, now, if you want an example, if you happen to see a Cambridge edition of the King James Bible, and you look at 
some of the headings. Now, this is not in the Bible, the headings at the top of the page. And you'll notice, particularly, say, in Isaiah, uh, sometimes the heading will say, on one page, it'll say, curses on Israel or judgment on Israel. And the next page will say, blessings for the church. Because one page has bad things, the next page has good things. And so that's, you have to take the one allegorically and the other one literally. Now, my argument, this is just by the way, is they take fulfilled prophecy literally. Everything about the first coming of Christ was literal, but they take everything about the second coming of Christ as figurative. And so I would say we're on firmer ground to, to have a literal uh, approach. We take what we would call uh, a literal grammatical and historical approach to, to Scripture. And so that's how we're going to, uh, to look at, at this, just trying to uh, see what we can get. Now, when you come to Zechariah, the time frame matters. And uh, if people can sort of get a time frame, and what I present to people is, uh, you just need to remember four numbers, really, to get the Old Testament sort of in a, in a you know, span. So Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ. The Exodus occurred somewhere around 1,500 years before Christ. David reigned 1,000 years before Christ. And then Zechariah and Haggai wrote 500 years before Christ. And so if you can sort of have that time frame in your mind as you read the Old Testament, because you know, of course, the Old Testament ends at the end of Second Chronicles in many ways, um, it really helps you just to be able to say, well, here's 2,000, here's 1,500, here's 1,000, here's five, uh, 500. And you can sort of fit everything uh, into that. And that... That I find uh, really, really helps. So Zechariah is, is giving his, uh, on the, you have an, a, a second page, you have a timeline. On page two, you have a timeline that tells you what's going on. So in 538, about 50,000 people came back from Babylon to Israel. So they're the committed people. Uh, I mean, some of them may have come because they didn't like Babylon. Some of them may have come because they didn't have a job or income. But to a large extent, they were people that were really concerned about the things of the Lord. And they came back, and if you read in the book of Ezra in the first couple of chapters, they, they really gave to the Lord's work. They were really interested. They, they started work right away. Uh, and in 535, the foundation of the temple was, was laid. And... Uh, so they were industrious and they were giving. They started uh, observing the feasts and, and uh, doing the things the Lord wanted them to do. And then you read in Ezra chapter 3, they got discouraged and they gave up. They just quit that work. They didn't quit living. Uh, they kept on doing things, but they took the material that the king of, of Persia had given them and they started using that on their houses. And so uh, Haggai says, you know, is it time for you to live in paneled or ornamented houses? They'd taken that material and beautified their homes. And so for 15 years, the foundation was there, but nothing else else happened. So on August the 29th in the year 520, uh, Haggai stood up in the courtyard of what should have been the temple, and he gave his his wonderful sermon. And uh, just because you're close to Haggai here is, his first sermon is really only from verse, uh, verse 3 or verse 4 down to verse 11. 
That's a sermon. Now, that's about a 30-second sermon. I don't know. If people preach like that, you'd have that guy every every Sunday. 30-second sermon. But if people responded like the people did to that 30-second sermon, that's all you would need because the people got to work right away. So he preached a short sermon. Uh, the theme of his sermon is consider your ways or think about what you're doing. Look where you're going. What really matters in life? And he says, here you are. He said, it's not the time for the Lord's work. It's not the time to build the Lord's house again. But here you are busy with the things that matter to you. And you've ignored that. So that's August 29th. On September 21st, they start working. So only three weeks later, they say, yes, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to get involved. We, we're committed uh, to this. And so... Uh, Haggai then gives another sermon on October 17th, and that uh, that sermon has to do with, it's in chapter 2 of Haggai, it's the people were discouraged. So they start to build, and some of the people had remembered what the other temple looked like. Uh, Solomon's temple was spectacular, right? Just one of the seven wonders of the world. And so there are still people, that was destroyed on August 10th, uh, 586, and so there was people still alive that had seen that temple. And so as the work starts, they're thinking, this is nothing. Uh, this is, what are we doing here? It just looks like nothing. You know, got a few stones to put up and none of the jewelry, none of the gold, the silver, all those things. This just is terrible. And so they were easily discouraged. And in fact, God says that. He says, uh, what do you think? It doesn't look like much, does it, what you're doing? And yet God encourages them with the work. And he encourages them with the fact that it's his work. He's working with them. He'll supply their needs. And ultimately, he says, uh, in this place, peace will flow out from here. There'll be a greater glory in this temple than in Solomon's temple. Just by the way, on uh, that day when Haggai was standing there on October the 17th was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in John chapter 8, that's when the Lord Jesus stood there and said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. I think that's the greater glory that was in that latter temple than in the first temple. Glory of the Lord Jesus. The very same spot, perhaps, the very same day of the year when the Lord Jesus gives that invitation. And so that's the setting. And so they're, they're getting to work. The Lord has encouraged them. But then in, in the book of Haggai, uh, in verses chapter 2, verse 10, down to verse 14, God gives a challenge. We won't read the verses. You can read Haggai when you get home. But God says, in essence, he says, okay, now you've begun the work, but here's what you've missed out on. He says, I demand holiness. And they might think, well, all I'm doing is laying bricks. All I'm doing is carrying mortar. All I'm doing is moving earth. And the Lord's encouraging them that they're doing the work, but he says, in a a way, he says, let's put up a stop sign here. And he says, holiness, first of all. Uh, The illustration that he uses, we might use a a modern-day illustration. You know, you go in the washroom and you wash your hands uh, and and dry them, and then you touch the doorknob. 
Is that doorknob sanctified or clean because you've touched it? No, it goes the other way, right? Your hands are contaminated again because 30 other people have touched that doorknob in the last hour and only 20 of them wash their hands. And so your hands are contaminated. And so that's what the Lord says. Is, as holiness is not contagious, it won't be passed on, but a lack of holiness, uncleanness, is contagious. And so he says, no, it's so important. If you're going to be involved in the Lord's work, and this, this goes right across the gamut, doesn't matter what testament or what period of time, the Lord demands holiness. Who will ascend to his holy hill? He who has clean hands, a pure heart, has not lift his, up his... Uh, under vanity, nor spoken deceitfully. And so the, the Lord demands holiness in us, a vessel separated, sanctified uh, for the master's use. And so against that backdrop, Zechariah is going to start to speak. So they've, they've started the work, but the Lord has said, wait a second, October 17th, he says, uh, just, just wait a second here. Uh, you, can't, you can't keep going uh, until you deal with, uh, with that, and so that brings us then to uh, to the book of uh, Zechariah. Now, Zechariah uh, is perhaps a young man. Uh, if you look at chapter two, verse four, he uses the word "a young man," and when that's used other places in Scripture, it does refer to somebody who's young in age. And so he's perhaps a, a young man. His his name means. Uh, Jehovah remembers, and that really is a key thing. Jehovah remembers. The Lord does uh, remember the plight of his of his people, and so he uses Zechariah out of the priestly family. Now there are two other sort of key individuals in the book of Zechariah. There's Joshua, not the Joshua from Moses's day, but Joshua, who's a high priest, and there's Zerubbabel. He's out of the line of David, and he's sort of the prince or the leader of the people. So you have Zechariah, who's a prophet. You have Joshua, who's a priest, and Zerubbabel, who's occupying a princely office. And those things will come into play in this book as well. One of the things that Zechariah presents often is the word, the Lord of hosts. And that's a phrase that's used about 260 times in the Old Testament. And it's, it's used to declare, uh, I think the, the NIV says the Lord Almighty, uh, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, uh, to declare or demonstrate the, the sovereignty of God, that he is over all. And uh, Zechariah uses this phrase a number of of times again in Psalm 24, it choose who is the King of Glory. The second time that question is asked, the Lord of Hosts, He is the King of Glory. And so Zechariah does present to us then the sovereignty of God, the fact that regardless of what's happening in the world, God is over all and in control and going to accomplish His purposes. Now, when we look at history uh, from a biblical perspective. History really is bound up with Israel. Uh, you never read about what happened in North America. You never read about what happened in China or what happened in Russia or different places. Uh, the history we're presented in Scripture all has to do or is tied in with, with Israel. And we'll see that uh, in here. It doesn't mean notable things or good things didn't happen in other places. But uh, from a divine perspective, history is tied to the nation 
of Israel. And so we will see that as we go uh, through here. So let's uh, take a passage or two. Uh, and you notice on, verse, on page one here, no, I didn't do this. This came off the internet, but when I found it, I thought I couldn't do anything half that good. Uh, so I absconded. I think there's a copyright it's uh, attributed to somebody. It's too small to read, but it's, it doesn't say McBride, believe me. Uh, so as a good outline, though, there's eight visions. Then there are four messages and two burdens. And so it's a wonderful uh, outline. So let's start with the, the introduction in the first six verses. And we'll see what we can learn from there. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear, nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now, one thing we should understand is that when God deals with Israel in the Old Testament, he's dealing with them nationally. He's not dealing with them individually as he might with us in this dispensation, in this age. Uh, When God deals with Israel, it doesn't mean that every Jew was, we might say, saved, a believer. We know that there were unbelievers in the nation. But he's dealing with the nation corporately, collectively. And so he's calling them collectively to repentance. Salvation is an individual thing. And so salvation, Old Testament, New Testament, millennial kingdom is always by faith, based on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. Never by works, always by faith, the free gift of God. And so when he deals like this with them, he's dealing collectively. And it's collectively that they rejected Christ, though not everybody in the nation rejected him. And many became believers and became part of the of the church, but the Lord Jesus appealed to them collectively, and God deals with them collectively and nationally. And so I think that's something we need to uh, keep in our, our minds. And so what he says to them collectively, he's not necessarily saying to us individually, but we see something of the character of God and, and the consequences of sin. And so on your outline on the, the first page, You see this constant appeal for repentance. And you see it all through Scripture. John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus, Peter, Paul, James. The thought of repentance, turning from your sins. So in verse uh, verse 3, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Uh, In the Old Testament, of course, Israel's blessing was contingent on their a faithfulness collectively to the Lord. Even when they were unfaithful, there were individuals who were faithful. But when they were unfaithful collectively, the Lord makes this appeal to them. If you return to me, I will return to you. 
And when the Lord dealt with them in the Old Testament, the blessing was visible and physical, material. They could see the Lord's hand of blessing. Uh, if you gain, if you read the book of Haggai, Haggai says, look at what's happened. While you're building, working on your own houses, ignoring the Lord's work, uh, you know, inflation is taking over, drought is coming, you've got nothing to show for it. Then he says in chapter 2, well, consider from this day forward and look and see what happens. Now that you're obeying the Lord, look at the blessings that will flow uh, to you. But we know in this age, God has never promised us material blessings. There's not a sense anywhere in the New Testament that we are promised material blessings for our obedience. Our blessings are spiritual. Uh, we might say the benefits are out of this world because they're not always in this world. Now, we live in a part of the world where we are blessed materially. We have benefits beyond so many uh, in the world, but that's the providential uh, care of God. Uh, it's, not, it's not because of being a chosen nation or anything like that. But the promise in the New Testament is tribulation, is, is persecution, is hatred. Those are the promises of the New Testament. But here, his word to them is to repent, return, repent. And it's a constant theme through Scripture. Uh, many in our day and age have decried the fact that often the gospel is preached without the call to repentance. Uh, it becomes a very simple message in the sense, I mean, the gospel is simple, but simplified in the sense that it's just receive Jesus and all your troubles will be over. But uh, scripture gives that call for repentance. And biblical repentance, uh, I don't think it's often understood. Biblical repentance involves agreeing with God. The word confession means I agree with God. This is sin, I agree. He says it's sin, I agree with him. So that's the mental aspect. But uh, Paul talks about the sorrow that goes with repentance. And so it should touch us emotionally, not just mentally, but emotionally. But you can be sorry. Uh, I've been sorry in my life, sorry I was caught. <laughs> not because I was, did something wrong, but sorry I got caught. And so you can have sorrow, but uh, that's not necessarily repentance. So it's an agreement, it's a sorrow, but then there's an act of the will, the volitional aspect where I say, yes, I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to go a different direction. And that's biblical repentance. And so uh, that's one of the problems in terms of, say, assembly discipline. Has somebody truly repented? Well, we don't know. We take them at their word. But true repentance would be uh, a confession and sorrow and a change of direction, or act of the will. And so that's what the Lord calls these people uh, to do, to return, to repent. So against the backdrop of what Haggai said, yes, it's fine that you're involved in the work and that this is going on and it looks like something is happening, but holiness, uh, you need to repent. You need to return and get things right uh, with me. And God uh, stresses the fact then that uh, his word uh, lasts. His word uh, is, is fixed. The prophets come and go, but his word is the, the standard. And what his word demanded and then what the word gave as a consequence happened. So if you're reading this, say you read this in your morning devotion and you look at it and you say, well, 
That's what he says to Israel. Here's these Jewish guys, uh, and Zechariah's writing, he's talking to Israel. God wants Israel to return, and he says his, his word is the standard and it's fixed, and here's the consequence. Well, what does it mean to me? What do I get out of it? So the interpretation belongs to Israel. But when you read, you should also look for an application, uh, something you can meditate on, something that will warm your heart devotionally. You don't make that the interpretation. You, I was in a place uh, about a year ago, sometime last year anyway, and some guy mentioned, uh, again, Psalm 24, uh, about the gates being opened. And uh, he said, we are the hinges, and we open the gates to let Christ. Well, that's just making something up. David never thought of that in that psalm. Those gates didn't have hinges. They were lifted up. So uh, you can't just go and say, this is what it means because I think it's what it means. You've got to have some basis. So the interpretation belongs to, to Israel. But as I read this, what's an application? The application is the importance of keeping things right with the Lord, of keeping short accounts. Uh, one of the things that goes with the Lord's Supper, examine yourself. Is there anything in my life that I need to be to make right. Um, walk in the light as he is in the light. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive. And so uh, it's an important challenge to us in our Christian life, um, not to return in the sense that he's challenging Israel, but to keep short accounts and to keep things right. And also there was consequences. Now, of course, uh, once we're saved, we're brought into a relationship that's unalterable. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, given the promise of God, eternal life. Uh, Jude verse uh, verse 1 uh, says we're preserved yesterday, today, forever. Never be lost. You're preserved in Christ Jesus. But my fellowship, the enjoyment of what I have can be lost. And so I need to keep short accounts. Or I can look at this and think of Galatians 6 verse 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever man sows. Not shall he also Reap. These people were reaping the results of what they sowed. They disobeyed God and they're reaping the results. I'm not going to reap the same type of results, but there are consequences for sin. And you see that all through scripture. And it puts me out of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes me ineffective uh, in his service. And so I want to keep short accounts. So when you read it, you want to say, okay, what, what does this mean? What did it mean when Zechariah said it? What's the interpretation? but you want to enjoy it and develop thoughts that will encourage you and warm your heart. So there's something you can think about during the day. So you go through the day thinking, well, how can I apply that? What will that mean to me? That's how you can fill your mind uh, with the Word of God. So we'll start uh, with his visions uh, next week, Lord willing. And uh, just remind you, in Hebrews chapter 1, God at various times and in various ways spoke in times past by the prophets. And so here, through Zechariah, he gives eight visions. Uh, God reveals his plan and purposes in visions. So if you want to read ahead, uh, give you something to dream about. Um, Zechariah's visions. And uh, we'll go from there next week, Lord willing. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are... Uh, thankful for your word and we're excited as we look into it and realize that uh, though this was written 2,500 years ago to a people in a different time, a different circumstance, different culture, everything different. And yet there are uh, principles that we can glean from it. It tells us something about uh, your uh, purposes and your work, your character, your demands. It tells us what's important to you. And so, Father, we pray that 
we would glean lessons uh, from this book. We again present to you these requests that have been made. We think especially of the gospel that will be preached on Saturday. And with Billy, as he presents it, we just thank you for opportunities like this. We recognize it's a tremendous privilege uh, and responsibility to handle the Word of God, but to have people in a situation like that who are perhaps tender and thinking about uh, the matters of life and death. And so, Father, we pray by your Spirit you'd work in their hearts and lives. We pray for the salvation of souls. Bless your people here. Encourage us from your word. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.